0: After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord... for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Well, good morning, church. Well, let me, let me
1: start this morning by asking you probably a dumb question, but I want to ask it anyway. How many of you, raise your hand, how many of you know of a church that has had disputes or disagreements that led to divisions even to the point where it affected the effectiveness of the church. If you know of churches like that, raise your hand. And yeah, most of us do. And sometimes uh, those disputes are over silly things like you know the, the, the paint of the outside building that is being applied or whether or not they move the piano to the other side of the stage, right? Sometimes it's over sinful things, uh, sin that is in uh, the leadership or sin that is not dealt with, that is. We've seen this quite a bit recently uh, as allegations are made about sexual abuse, for example, or things that are abuse of power, and it's just swept under the rug. And then sometimes it's due to systemic change that happens in the church. That's the types of things that create disputes. And certainly, you know, our church has been around now for 40, what, 42, 44, I think, years, something like that we've seen disputes in all of those areas. We've seen disputes that come from silly reasons. I remember when I first came here, wasn't too long. I saw uh, poor Jonathan having to meet with a bunch of parents who were very upset over uh, some messy games that took place in the youth group that involved baked beans, boys and girls. And they were pretty sure one of those three should not have been in that sentence, right? Of baked beans, boys and girls, and I thought to myself, "I have stepped into the twilight zone at this church, right? Just silly. Um, and then there's, there's been sin uh, before, you know, many years ago, before I came, there was a wolf in uh, sheep's clothing who deceived many, led many astray, uh, and created deep wounds and wounded our church. And those of you who were here uh, during that time, uh, you, you refer to that as the troubles. And you live through it, and even mentioning it brings a sense of maybe post-traumatic stress as sin uh, affected this church, and it had to be dealt with, and it was hard. And then there's systemic change. We're in the middle of it, if you didn't notice uh, this morning when you drove up here. It's kind of hard not to see that there's change going on, but um, I would suggest that the building program and this change is simply the outworking of a, a greater change that uh, a systemic change that the elders agreed to, uh, oh gosh, 12 years ago or more, back in 2009, 2010 timeframe, and that this change that we're going through right now is simply uh, another manifestation of many changes that really go all the way back to one fundamental systemic change that was decided on back then. Back in 2009, 2010 timeframe, the elders back then were convinced, and we're still convinced today, That God's will for our church, he does not want covenant church to impact our world by being a a reformed traditional church or a reformed conservative church and uh, all that is associated with those theological and philosophical paradigms. That instead, God wants covenant church to be a reformed evangelical church that is missional minded and gospel centered in all that we do. Okay, and we we went through all this and we made a conscious decision as leaders believing this was God's will and we announced that back then and we made that initial commitment and change of direction and when we announced it, you know, there was very little pushback. Pretty much everyone, yeah, absolutely. But as we began to unpack and apply that systemic change, as people began to understand the implications of how that change would begin to affect uh, and touch on something that maybe was important to them, right? Uh, that was special to them and, and would affect that. That's when disputes could arise, or disagreements, or even divisions. And I, I bring that up because we have a similar situation here in Acts chapter 15. The Jewish Christians. They, they've, they've been thrilled. The Gentiles have come into the kingdom of God, right? You remember back we a couple of weeks back we were in Acts 10 and 11. Peter he preaches the first sermon to Cornelius and the Gentiles come into the kingdom of God. And and at first the church in Jerusalem's upset, right? They go, Whoa, what's going on? And Peter has to go back to them and he explains. And there was a few that did not get on board, but overall the church was like, all right, wow, we didn't see this coming. But how about that? The the gospel is so powerful, it can even convert the pagans. How exciting it is! Until some of the Jews began to understand the implications of the gospel and how it was going to touch and change some of the things that were very special and important to them and when they realized that, disputes began, divisions began to arise, and it culminates here in Acts chapter fifteen. Acts chapter fifteen, as you know, as I began to study for this series way way back uh, in the summer, I noticed that a lot of times Acts fifteen gets got skipped in different churches as pastors decided to preach through Acts, the Book of Acts. I think that's a mistake. This, I think this is actually maybe the pivotal point in the entire book of Acts, right? And in fact, from here on out, we don't even really think about the Jerusalem church and the Apostle Peter. Everything now is looking at the Gentiles and, and what happens as the kingdom goes into the Gentiles. But, but this chapter is important. It's the first, what we would call, church council. First of many, and it's an important one because in this chapter, Acts chapter 15, it has something to say that's important about church disputes and something even more important to say about the gospel and how the gospel is supposed to shape and inform our response when we have disputes in the church. So the overarching truth that kind of shapes this passage and the message this morning is that resolving church disputes with gospel-centered transparency, unifies the church and clarifies her mission. Church disputes do not have to destroy the church. Church disputes can actually strengthen the church, unify the church and give it more missional clarity. And that's what we see here. So let's jump right in by first noting that with church disputes, the stakes are often very high. We begin in verse 1 by seeing that some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, let's see, uh, well, I lost my place. Uh, okay, uh, had no a small dissension and debate with them. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. Let me set some context for you here. Until this point in time, the church has been primarily Jewish, right? It's primarily Hebrew. It's focused mostly in Israel. Paul and Barnabas have done their missions trip to Asia Minor. There's been some churches planted there. There's a church in Antioch, but primarily the church is Jewish. Most of the members have a heritage of obedience to the law of Moses. Their heritage is Hebrew and Israeli. In the Jerusalem church, you have extra complications. You have members in that church who had been priests in the temple members who had been a part of the party of the Pharisees they had been Pharisees and priests and they had heard the gospel and they had been converted they they believed that Jesus was the promised prophesied Messiah they they were saved they were brothers and sisters in Christ but then they began to hear about the gentiles great the gentiles are saved but the gentiles are not Getting circumcised. The Gentiles are not obeying the law of Moses. That word circumcision there is just shorthand. It wasn't just circumcision, it was the entirety of the law of Moses. They weren't observing the law. The the crux of the issue is simply this. He looked at it and said, Since Jesus is the Jewish Messiah and you are trusting in the Jewish Messiah for your salvation. It makes sense that you should become Jewish if you are going to be call yourself a Christian. Right? You should become a Hebrew. You should embrace the law of Moses and become a Jew, not stay like the Gentiles. So they believed in Jesus. They were saved. They saw him as Lord and as the prophesied Messiah, where they were struggling in the gospel was the whole grace alone, faith alone portion of the gospel. Why? Because they were Jews. (laughs) Their heritage was all about the law, the old covenant. God had chosen Israel that's a chosen people. God had chosen the Jewish people to give his law to them. Their, their life revolved around the law. They had been raised and indoctrinated. They'd been ingrained in them from the time they were babies that, that God was pleased with the person who obeyed the law. God would bless them and love them because they obeyed the law. God was pleased with them because they obeyed the law. You proved your love to God by obeying the law. And after all, wasn't Jesus Jewish? Didn't Jesus say, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law? And so if you are going to believe in the Jewish Messiah to be saved, it only makes sense that you embrace everything that it means to be Jewish, because Jesus was Jewish. Makes sense, right? In Fact, I mean, there's people today in modern Christianity that are as Gentile as Gentile can be, that for some reason are going back to Hebrew roots. In Christianity, and they walk around and instead of saying Jesus, they say Yeshua and they observe festivals from the old covenant and have diets. And I'm like, man, give me pulled pork. I don't get it. Okay. <clears throat> okay. If you think about it, what you have going on here is actually an example of our prayer of renewal this morning with the older brother and the younger brother remember the parable that Jesus gave with the with the the prodigal son if you don't know the parable it's a great story Jesus told about a father he had two sons The younger son came to him and said, give me my inheritance. He took it. He ran away, went to a far country where all the pagans and Gentiles lived. And he lived a debauched, immoral life, doing all the things that young people will do sometimes. He wasted all of his money, wakes up living in a pigsty, eating the food that the pigs, and he realizes, I'm in trouble. It would be better for me to go back to my dad's house, beg for his forgiveness, and and ask, can I be a servant? I'm not worthy to be your son, but can I be a servant? At least I would eat better, have a roof over my head and not smell like pig slop. And so he crawls his way back home and when he gets within sight, his father sees him and his father is overjoyed. The, the, the son that had been lost is now found and he restores him to the family and he celebrates and he just opens his arms and he receives him and he pours out his love upon him and he's so happy. He cleans him up. He dresses him in the best clothes. He throws this incredible party for this young man who has wasted part of his youth and he's, he's just overjoyed. Kills the fatted calf. I mean, he spares no expense on this party. The older brother, the good son, who obeyed all the dad's rules, who did everything that the dad said, who lived his life in line with everything that his dad wanted in order to please his dad and to to earn his dad's love and to live in his dad's favor. He sees all this going on and he throws a temper tantrum says, this isn't fair. I have, done, I have done everything you have asked of me and you have never given me anything like this. This is unjust, this is not right. And the father says, wait a second. You've always had my love. You've always had all of these things because you are my beloved son. You see, the older brother thought he had to earn it all and he got all those things because he was such a good son by keeping his dad's rules. He just didn't understand what it meant to be the son. And he was jealous of what was going on with the younger son. And that's, that's what's going on here. The Gentiles, they're the younger brother who are coming in and they're being received. And these Jews, they're the older brother, saying, wait a second, time out. They have not been obeying the rules. They should not be getting all these blessings and all the father's love without having to do everything that we have to do. This is not fair. You know, those of you who have kids, you can hear this, right? You've all, we've all had kids who do this at some point or another. See, see, Paul and Barnabas, they recognize this dispute for what it is. They recognize how high the stakes are. You know, if, if the accusers are right, Paul and Barnabas are heretics. Their converts have not been converted. They're still lost in their sins. Their church plants are not legitimate churches. If if their accusers are wrong, their accusers are attacking the integrity of the gospel. If their accusers are wrong, they're attacking the ministry of the gospel. You see, Paul and Barnabas have been preaching to the Gentiles and to the Jews in the synagogues everywhere they could, that all of us are born as sinners separated from God, that our sin is so deep and so thorough and so radical The chasm between us and God is so vast that it is impossible for us to earn our way back into the favor of God. We can never be good enough to merit God's forgiveness. We can never be moral enough to induce God to say, man, he's a pretty good guy, a pretty good gal. They should have eternal life. We can never be good enough to To cause God to be happy and pleased and love us. Not at all. It all comes through God's grace that God sent Jesus to live the life that we were to live and die on the cross for our sins and that when we trust in Jesus by faith and commit our lives to him, Jesus now has our allegiance. God, through his grace, does this amazing transaction. He declares us righteous. We don't earn our righteousness. We don't do good and live such a great life that God looks at us and evaluates us and then passes the verdict, you are now righteous. No, he declares us righteous because of Jesus and what Jesus has done in our place. And he gives us Jesus's righteousness And so because of our identification with Jesus and trust in Jesus, we're declared righteous. He declares us sons and daughters who are loved, who are invited to the party. Let me give you a party. Welcome home, sons and daughters. Because you're in Jesus, I love you. Because you're in Jesus, I'm pleased with you. Because you're in Jesus, you have all of my favor and all of my riches and all of my grace You don't have to earn it. It's yours because you're in Jesus. I've declared you righteous, I've declared you holy. And so, because of this, we don't obey God to earn his pleasure, we don't serve God to merit his love. We don't don't do what we do in order in some way to to induce God to bless us. We serve God because he's already pleased with us. We love God because he already loves us. We, we We want to live for him because we already belong to him and he's declared us righteous already. That's why we do it. Church, at the core of so many church disputes, are saved older brothers who deep down struggle with being accepted by God and loved by God and declared righteous by God solely by His grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. We older brothers need to justify our justification. That's what's going on. We need to contribute to our acceptance. Older brothers find it very difficult to receive gifts. Older brothers find it very hard to simply receive love. Older brothers have to earn it. Older brothers have to be worthy of it in some way or another. So, we attach to the ministry of the gospel a particular church ministry or some area of service Because deep down in our hearts, and and we don't know that this is what's going on, but deep down in our hearts, we are looking to that ministry or that program or that area of service to in some way justify our justification. That's what's going on. We equate a philosophy of worship or a system of doctrine with the integrity of the gospel. And in so doing, we unconsciously reassure ourselves that we are accepted by God because we are intensely defending the integrity of the gospel, fighting for its purity, resisting any compromise. And sadly, like these Jewish believers, what we don't realize is that we are actually undermining the integrity of the gospel. We are actually hindering the ministry of the gospel. We're saved. Just don't have the awareness of what is going on deep down in our hearts. See, older brothers are so busy obeying God and trying to earn God's favor. And and they don't know it, they don't know it here. See, this is all going down deep down in the heart. This is layers of the onion of the heart. And, And older brothers don't know this because older brothers are so busy maybe studying and accumulating more knowledge and and doing all these things, that they never have the time to do the deep reflection that is necessary to peel back the onions to see what is actually going on in their lives. They live at the surface level of Christianity. And I know this because this is a large part of my story. I'm speaking from, unfortunately, personal experience. This is what happens. And rather than becoming an agent of reconciliation, you can become very quickly an agent of chaos. So when it comes to church disputes, the stakes are very high. And oftentimes the ones who instigate it are the ones who very much profess their love of Jesus and their allegiance to the gospel. A horrible irony there. Secondly, when handled well, a church dispute can lead to greater unity and missional clarity. Disputes can rip a church apart, right? Some of you know this well. Resolving those disputes requires two things. It requires a gospel, transmi- uh, a gospel transparency and humility that only comes about through the work of the Holy Spirit. And it requires an allegiance to the gospel before all other agendas. And you see both of those things present in this passage. Let's start with gospel humility, excuse me, gospel humility and transparency. It's, It's in this passage in several places. Verse four says, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. Paul and Barnabas come. Now, Luke is giving us the public picture of this, right? And you, and you see the transparency here. They come, all the apostles and elders gathered together. Great transparency. There's no backroom deals, right? They're all coming together. But, but there's actually something else that happens here that demonstrates great gospel humility. In Galatians 2, Paul gives us an insider's look. And in Galatians chapter 2, what Paul tells us is before they got all the elders and, and apostles together that Paul and Barnabas went and met with Peter, James, and John. And he brought with him Titus, who was a converted, uncircumcised Gentile. (laughs) So he brought a walking, talking illustration of their ministry. And Paul says in Galatians 2, we met with them privately to, to validate, were we preaching the truth or not? In other words, Paul and Barnabas had this humility to go to Peter, James, and John and say, listen, there's this big brouhaha. Are we wrong? Would you you please sanity check what we are preaching? And I, I love that, that these brothers were willing to submit themselves to other brothers and say, sanity check us here. Great gospel humility. And then you see that they didn't seek a a false peace. They didn't sweep the issue under the rug. All the elders and apostles are called together. Verse five, but some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So they come together, they put the issues on the table. Everyone understands what is at the core of this dispute. The, The lines are drawn. One party is saying you cannot be saved unless you accept the law of Moses and the old covenant and Jesus Christ. And the other line is saying it's Jesus only, dudes. That's it, by grace through faith. And the leaders, great transparency here. They didn't say, "Okay, let's just all get along. This is all just a communication mistake. Let's let's find our common ground." And are you? Can you give here? Nope. They dealt with it. Great transparency. And then, thirdly, you see that the church leaders they attentively listen to the arguments before they chime in with their own opinions and judgments verse 6 the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter verse 7 and after there had been much debate after there had been much debate peter stood up and said to them that word debate there means heated arguments heated arguments this was a this was a knockdown drag out fight right this was not some Marcus of Queensberry rules type thing. These were people who were passionate about their positions, but the elders and the apostles sat and they listened and everyone was able to speak their piece and to put on the table what they believed and why they believed it. And it was all out in the open for it to be considered and evaluated. And in a the final example of this humility and transparency that this, honors the gospels in verse 12, where it talks about the entire assembly was able to listen in on the discussion. Now, I'm not sure, and does this mean, and I couldn't find an answer to this, does this mean the entire assembly of the elders and the apostles and the parties? Or was this the elders, the apostles, the parties, and anybody in the church who was able to fit into the room who wanted to listen? I'm not sure, but apparently... There was obviously, there was a lot of sunlight in this thing. And then in verse 22, you definitely have the whole church involved because in verse 22, the whole church affirms the verdict of the apostles and elders, and they help carry out the action plan and the communication plan that was decided upon. So ultimately, the entire church is well aware of what's going on, what was said, and what was decided, and why it was decided. Great transparency. What a wonderful way to handle a dispute here. How about gospel allegiance? Some great examples of it. Verse 7, Peter finally speaks. And when he does, he points them back to Cornelius. He reminds them of what happened to Cornelius. And then in verse 10, he says, Now, therefore... Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? In other words, why would we do to the Gentile Christians what we ourselves have not been able to do? That doesn't make any sense. And then verse 11. Man, I think this is like the, the, the critical point in the entire argument where Peter is pulling them back to the gospel. But We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they are saved. And and even how he chooses the words, he doesn't say the Gentiles will be saved by grace just as we are. He says we Jews will be saved by grace just as they are. We're all the same and it's all by grace. And then in verse 13, another example of this allegiance comes from James, the brother of Jesus. When he stands up, you gotta think, that the Pharisee party was like, finally, our guy. <clears throat> because James, who was kind of the leader of the Jerusalem church, he was known as James the Just. History tells us that he was definitely sympathetic to the law and to this idea, and he was, he was devout. He was known as a praying man. His, calluses were, he, he, his, his knees were known to be just so ugly because of the calluses from being on his knees so much. But he stands up and rather than supporting them, he comes right back to the gospel and he quotes Amos. And he says, this has all been part of God's plan from the beginning that the Gentiles will come into the kingdom. And how do they come into the kingdom? It's through the gospel of grace. And then you see this allegiance in his verdict that he gives, right? In verse, excuse me, in verse 12. Therefore, my judgment, excuse me, verse 19. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Even in that verdict, you see this balance between gospel humility and allegiance to the gospel. Kent Hughes writes, and he notes that that balance. He says, first, as those under grace, we are not to make non-biblical requirements of others, specifically, those that come from secondary cultural traditions. And that day, this meant not foisting a Jewish lifestyle on Gentiles. Today, this means we are not to make areas of our lifestyle that are not spelled out in scriptures normative for others if they are to be considered good Christians. For example, how we dress, how we run our church, the standards of living we think proper, Personal taste, musical preferences, including in a worship service, etc. If we thrust any of these on others as necessary to a life of grace, we repeat the sin of the Judaizers. This is gospel allegiance. It's calling us back to grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone. But how about gospel humility? It also is in the verdict. It's in the second principle. Because we are under grace, we gladly restrict our freedom for the sake of others. If you're wondering, why can't they eat the meat? Why the whole meat restriction? And and what they're saying is, listen, the gospel's going out. We want the gospel to go everywhere throughout the, the Mediterranean Roman world and there's synagogues everywhere. And where does Paul and Barnabas go first? They go to synagogues, to the Jews who have been immersed in the law. And if there's one thing that will create an obstacle to the Jews hearing the gospel, it's some of those diet things. So for the sake of the gospel, modify that one aspect of your diet for the benefit of those brothers and those people God's going to call in the kingdom. Just a gospel humility to put our freedom aside so that the kingdom and the mission can be fulfilled. Listen, the church, they faced this dispute, and they ended up with a church that had greater unity and more clarity with their mission. And church, we have had disputes in our past. We are going to have disputes, unfortunately, in the future. It's inevitable, because some of us are pretty hard-headed, Right? So let's don't forget what this church did here. It's important. That process that they did, it's important, right? Their process, first of all, valued institutional justice. Everybody was honored. Everybody was given a fair hearing. Those with grievances were listened to and respected and they were heard. They were treated as brothers and sisters in Christ, not like the enemy, There was institutional justice there in that process. And secondly, within that process, there was appropriate transparency and communication. No backroom deals, not a secret cabal, making all the decisions, foisting it down by fiat upon everyone else, saying like it or lump it and don't let the door hit you on the rear on the way out if you don't like it. There was a shepherding of the people that took place here. The apostles didn't just pull rank, make a decision and say go on with your life. Were the apostles? Not at all. Wonderful shepherding in their transparency and communication, and most importantly, in this process they considered everything in light of the gospel and the ministry of the gospel for the benefit of the kingdom and for the people and God's glory. And so as a result, the church was unified. The mission was strengthened. What they did is so important, but I would suggest to you that how they did it was even more important. More than the mechanics of the process is the heart attitude. They interacted with one another with a humility that only comes about as the Holy Spirit Applies the gospel to our lives. That humility is what won today. The how, that's always gonna be our greatest challenge, church. It's not the process, it's the heart. That was always the greatest challenge. And if you don't believe me, simply look at the end of chapter 15. At the beginning of chapter 15, here you have this dynamic duo, Paul and Barnabas, bringing this issue to this church, Jerusalem, being dealt with in this incredible way. The church is strengthened, mission going forward. At the end of chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas have a personal dispute, and the scripture says the dispute was so severe between them, neither one could compromise and bend And the dynamic duo is broken up and they have to go their separate ways. God help us with the how as much as you do with the what. As much as it is the the mechanism of resolving disputes and ensuring that things are done decently and order and transparently with justice for all. Lord, give us a heart That is humble and transparent with one another that comes only through the gospel. It only comes because we have this deep assurance that we are already accepted by you through Jesus Christ. When we are confident of your love through Jesus, we don't have to be defensive, we don't have to, to win the day in order to have our significance established. We simply have the desire to see you glorified. So Lord, that how, that gospel humility in so many different ways is important to be part of the aroma of a church. And Lord, we thank you for where it's present. We, in our church already, we ask that it would just saturate this body so that all who know us would just taste and smell the winsomeness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.